Hi, welcome to Online Marketing with John Lagadakis, where we talk about how to set up and run a successful online business, all the way from registering your first domain to setting up your website, SEO, sales funnels and sales copy, social media, lead generation, free and paid traffic methods, and much more. I hope you get a lot out of today's episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast, everyone. It's great to have you here. Thank you so very much for joining us. Our special guest today is Mitch Russo. Thank you, Mitch, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, let me tell you all a bit about Mitch. Mitch is the former CEO of Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes Business Breakthroughs International, which together he grew to $25 million per year in revenue. Before that, he founded Time Slips Corp, which was purchased after reaching $10 million in sales. He's also published the Amazon bestseller, The Invisible Organization, which had the foreword written by the famous business guru, Jay Abraham. Mitch has also been nominated by Inc. Magazine two times for Entrepreneur of the Year. And he's got a lot of other impressive things that he's achieved over the years. That is definitely some of the highlights. So we're so grateful to have you here on the show. And I know you can share a lot of great insights for our listeners and especially for those that are listening and have an online business, we're going to particularly be talking to Mitch about his experience starting one of his online businesses, which I know we can learn a lot from. But before we do that, what I love to do, and I haven't actually, I forgot to mention this to Mitch before we got started. What I love to do at the beginning is get to know our guests personally, or who is Mitch Russo, the person, i.e. Mitch, if, as far as you're comfortable, tell us a bit about your life growing up family life, early experiences, especially key influences early on in your life that sort of shaped who you are today? <clears throat> okay, well, certainly one of the key influencers in my life has been Jimi Hendrix. I mean, without Jimi Hendrix, I would have no acid rock guitar to, uh, to, to love. I mean, so he was my favorite guitar player in the world. Uh, Frank Zappa, I named my own rock band after Frank Zappa's first album called Absolutely Free. So, I mean, my early influences were, were my rock heroes. Uh, and I guess I grew up wanting to be a rock star. Yeah, it was a, see, that's something I didn't know. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, and how did you go with your, your rock band? Well, you know, it was very interesting. Um, when I built my rock band, I sort of built it the way uh, you build a business, you know. And so I actually later in life, I summarized the uh, experience of how to build a rock band and how a rock band trained me to be CEO in a blog post on my website, MitchRusso.com. And I'll share, you, I'll share the link with you so you could share it with your uh, listeners on the show page. But in essence, what happened was that, you know, we were just hanging out, a bunch of friends and I, and we were getting stoned, smoking pot and playing music. And uh, we thought it was great. But it turns out it really sucked. <laughs> you know, by the time we turned on the, the recorder <clears throat> and then played it back, we realized how bad we really were. So we had a new rule, which was no getting high during brand practice or during paid performances. So that made a big difference. Then at that point, we got serious and we started practicing. And we started building a repertoire, a playlist of songs. And so from that, uh, we learned the lesson of discipline. So we basically put the time in and put the discipline in. And as a result of that, we had a terrific band. <clears throat> then we started to get booked by 
moms for sweet 16s and later for frat fraternity houses for their parties. And that, again, led to some really great lessons about PR. Turns out that uh, whenever we, got a, a, we played a, a successful show, I'd come with a clipboard and I'd offer the clipboard and a pencil to whoever hired us and they'd write a testimonial right on the spot. So it was a lot of fun. I, like I said, I learned a lot about promotion, about building a business. We even price tested the, uh, you know, our rates. We got to the point, we, start, we started out charging $75 a night. Later, after we price tested, we realized that we could charge $500 a night, and we did. And this was in 1970. So think about that. I mean, 1970, $500 was a lot of money. Wow, that's a big that's a big jump in price testing to go from seventy five dollars to five hundred dollars. It takes a bit of guts. Well, and it actually we didn't do it like instantly. We sort of did it uh, little by little. I mean, <clears throat> once we realized what the market will bear, we didn't have any hesitation, frankly, about raising the price. Uh, we raised it from seventy five to one twenty five. We raised it from one twenty five to I think it was 200 and then from there we raised it like a hundred dollars each time and nobody bought nobody complained so we went to 200 to 300 to 400 we raised it to $500 and there were some people who get mm, well that's a little bit much but we were getting bookings so we kept it at $500 and that's kind of how we uh, you know we earned money when we were growing up yeah excellent why didn't you continue with that what what led you to, uh, how, how did you go from that to being a CEO, let's say for Tony Robbins? Sure. Great question. And here's the key thing, because, you know, in my aspiration to be a great rock and roll star, I had a realization and this was a realization that completely changed the course of my life. You want me to tell you what that realization was? Yes, please. Here's the realization. I had no talent at all. <laughs> So I was a good guitar player because I could copy other people's songs. But when it came to being original, I had no talent whatsoever. Right. So, it sounds, like, sounds like me, Mitch. <laughs> so I had the realization. I said, you know what? I'm probably not going to be a rock star. Yes, it bummed me out. I was disappointed. But it allowed me to free my space, my headspace, to open to other things. And that's when I decided to build a software company. After taking several jobs, realizing that the world needed a new software company and that was going to be me who was going to provide it, I decided to build Time Slips Corporation. And I did with my partner, Neil. And what, what was this year roundabout when you started building Time Slips? I started building Time Slips in 1985. Mm -hmm. And it started out with just me and a next door neighbor chatting over coffee about what I needed in a software program that I couldn't find on the market. And we, uh, we spent a lot of time working on what the software should actually do. And we got to the point where he was working on it. He was the programmer. He was working on it uh, almost every day uh, for six months. And finally, we had something we really, really thought was terrific. So we both quit our jobs. And here's the funny part about that. After we quit our jobs, actually two days after we quit our jobs, we were informed that the reason we wrote the software to begin with no longer existed. So we wrote the software to keep track of our computer usage for 
the uh, IRS for deducting on the American tax returns. Right. And it turns out that the IRS relaxed those rulings on just about the day that we were getting ready to go into test. So we were shocked. I mean, the whole business just was over in one single day. And so my partner and I, we brainstormed, we, we struggled to figure out what to do next. And then we came up with this idea, which turned out to be a more, a much bigger idea than the original idea. And it led to building a hundred person software company, which we later sold for, for eight figures. Mm. And if you don't want me to ask you, so what, how did you change it? Because it's interesting, this experience you shared, because I, I heard a, another entrepreneur share another experience where he was building uh, some software and the day he released it or just when he was about to release, actually, I think it was the same day that he released it, Google released the same type of software and obviously wow. Google's, Google's software was going to be a lot better because they have a lot sure. more you know, backing. How did you get around that? Well, the software was keeping track of computer usage time. And when we sat down after being depressed and throwing things around the room for a little while, (laughs) we came to the idea that, you know something, there are other people who need to keep track of time. Well, then we started thinking about, well, who could that be? That would be lawyers, that would be accountants, that would be consultants, that would be graphic artists. I mean, there'd be several different people who could keep track of time and bill it. So Mm -hmm. I said to my partner, Neil, I said, Neil, but we don't have a billing system. And he said, no problem. I can write one. I said, but you don't have any experience writing a billing system. And he goes, no, no, no. I wrote a billing system for a hairdresser. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, a hairdresser and a lawyer, how close are they? (laughs) (laughs) But we did, you know, he went back into uh, into the lab, if you will, and he spent another two months changing the software based on our new idea. Meanwhile, I spent time researching time and billing software for lawyers and understanding what the market was already like. Uh, I even borrowed some of the user manuals for other products and started to understand what we needed mm-hmm. in our software. So, Yeah, yeah. So, so, and there's some really great points you're raising, and that is – Besides doing the work, the, the, the coding, the research, uh, one of the books that I've, I've recently read is The Lean Startup, Eric Rice. And, uh, yep. and he, he actually talks about coming from a software background and, and creating software that he, he spent months and months coding only to find when he tested it with users that most of the features, they didn't even weren't interested in them. And, and features that he didn't think was important, they actually wanted. So by you going and grabbing these manuals and doing your research, obviously that's going to help a lot. Uh, but, but I'm assuming too, uh, Mitch, that the market didn't have exactly what you were offering. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. See, most of what we were, got to remember the year is 1985, and most law firms in particular were back office operations. And what I mean by that is that you had the women in the back doing the accounting and the the lawyers up front doing the lawyering. Uh, What we had this insight, we said, you know, computers keep coming down and will be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Eventually lawyers will want computers on their desks to do research, to do their briefs and to keep track of their time so that they could actually capture more of their billable hours. 
So we built an immediate pop-up tool that worked like a taxi cab meter and kept track of time. Well, it turns out that once we got our basic program working, we then went into the forums on CompuServe. And for those of you who weren't, who aren't over 40, CompuServe is a similar to think of it as of alt news groups these days. So it's like going into a news group for lawyers, sharing a beta version of your software, asking them to test it, and then asking for reaction back, which when they give you, you incorporate immediately into the product. That's what we did. Yeah, very, very important step there. And did you find as you did that, Mitch, there were things that you didn't think of that you needed to do or uh, oh. things that you needed to change? I'm, I'm guessing there was a lot of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, and we weren't really like, oh, well, if, uh, if we didn't think of it, then it's no good. No, no, we were the opposite. We mm-hmm. basically said, if we get this feedback from working lawyers who know their business, then we got to put it in because, because they need it. And, mm-hmm. and they tell us they need it, so we got to put it in. Yeah. And awesome. that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. How did you build it up from there? So let's say, so when, how did you roll it out, let, let's say? Yeah. Sure. So back then, of course, there was no internet and there were some dominant publications in the industry. One of them was called InfoWorld. You know, InfoWorld still, still exists, but it's nothing. It's, it's a shadow of what it used to be in terms of its influence. So what I did is I went to trade shows. I went to a show that's no longer around called Comdex. And at Comdex, I literally walked around booth to booth I carried a hundred copies of my software. I stacked them up in my hotel room and I took about 10 or 12 out at a time in my briefcase. And I walked over to all the editorial people at all the different booths and I asked who covered new software releases. And I handed out over a hundred copies of my software to editors and publishers and writers, uh, as many as I could find over 10 days at, at, this, compu- at, at this event. Comdex in Las Vegas. Then when I got home, the first employee we ever hired was a PR person because I realized we didn't have a lot of advertising money, but PR is how we were going to make this company successful. And it worked. What what type of PR would, so this is back in around 80, 86, 85 still? Okay. So 85, 85, what, what kind of PR worked really well back in 85? Well, back then, I mean, it was all about the software. So there were software reviews being run all the time. So what we would do is arrange to have meetings with people and demo our software. Now, the other thing that I did, uh, I got on a plane and I flew to different cities to demo my software to PC user groups and to law associations and bar associations. So I was very active and going out and showing the software, getting people to evaluate it, and even training people how to use it. So when we attended trade shows, instead of having a booth, I would have a classroom. And it turned out we had a booth, and we never sold any software because we were pitching. But when I had a classroom, and I started training people how to use it, everyone would leave the class and buy the software. So we would sell 50 to 100 copies almost every day at a trade show. Whereas when we just had a booth, we only sold four or five a day. Wow, that's a massive difference. What about, so in today's environment, uh, Mitch, yep. 
let's say you were starting up today, what strategies could you would you recommend mm-hmm. for those that have software that are looking to get it out there in the market? What ways could they do it today? Well, okay, now software has again a specific market. So I would ask what type of software? What's it for? Who does it serve? What's its price point? Is it dealing is it serving the corporate user? Is it serving the home user, the professional office? You know what I mean? I'd have to know more about this, but I would still use PR. I would, and I will when I'm about to launch another company and I will be using PR quite heavily, of course. Uh, But at the same time, answering those questions will help me understand who the ideal client might be. They call that an avatar, right? Think about that. Mm. So once you know your avatar, then at that point, you're able to figure out how to reach that avatar. Now, Facebook, of course, makes it very easy to find exactly who you want to reach using their targeting, Uh, but you have to pay for Facebook ads. And that's fine if you have an offer that um, allows people to uh, self-liquidate your advertising, meaning as long as they buy a 30, 40% of the people who see your ad buy something small, that offsets the cost of advertising. So if they buy something for seven or 10 or $20, whatever it is, you're then getting reimbursed for some of the money you're spending on ads. Now at this point, you could spend more and you still have all those leads that you could follow up with. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're planning on talking about what you're currently working on. So you, you, have, some, you have a software you're working on or is it something totally different, not software it's related? A, it, it is software related and I can't talk about it yet. But I got to tell you, I'm very, very, very excited about it. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I can't even talk about it, but beta will be available in 30 to 45 days of this recording. So today is October 2nd. It should be ready around November 15th. And I'll be sharing it with my, with my peers who all already own and run companies. And we'll be getting it out to people for testing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Excellent. When I was looking at doing this interview together with you, Mitch, uh, I was impressed to see that you were former CEO for Tony Robbins. I've, I've yep. read a lot of Tony's stuff, seen, uh, listened to a lot of his audio, some of his video. I love his content. I'm sure mm-hmm. that would have been a great experience for you. How did you go, come about? Uh, how did you become CEO uh, of, mm-hmm. of, with Tony Robbins? And can you share some experiences with us? Yes, of course. Yeah, sure. So it turns out that um, a a friend of mine named Chet Holmes and I uh, had been, we started our friendship when I had my software company and it's, we've kept in touch over the years of many, many years. And I got a call one day and he invited me to help him with a problem he was having with his company. And after I helped him with that problem, he then asked me to stay and work with him to build his company which I agreed to do. And it was shortly thereafter that we opened up negotiations with Tony Robbins to build a company, the three of us together. And that's what I did. So we got involved with Tony and we started talking every Thursday night to work with the lawyers and figure out exactly what we needed to do. And then once we did that, and once we had a clear understanding, we went forward and we formed a new company and we poured all of Chet, Chet's material and Tony's business material into this new company and Tony became 
the, the spokesperson, the salesperson for the company. And uh, immediately uh, we started advertising on the radio. So we started out spending $20,000 a month on radio advertising. And later that moved to spending about $125,000 a month on radio advertising. And that was driving about 3,000 inbound phone calls every single month into our call into our call centers and we had uh, probably 25 to 30 salespeople virtual salespeople which which I write about in my book which is how to set up those types of organizations and those people were answering the calls and closing business right on the phone so it was a massive telephone sales operation and <clears throat> working with Tony was was wonderful imagine having Tony Robbins as your mentor as your advisor over the course of five years, I mean, it sure made me a better CEO. Mm. Was there any particular moments or lessons that you can share with us, experience, something that, uh, in, an insight maybe that, you're, that you got while working with Tony? You know, there's so many, I almost don't know where to start. I mean, one of the things that I remember Tony being very passionate about was making sure that customers were always taken care of was making sure that whoever we came in contact with was impressed by who we were and what we did. And even more so than Chet had ever done before, Tony was really focused on the client experience. And I think what he saw in me was that I had that same focus when I built my software company. So for me, it was a very easy, very natural way of thinking about making my company, now Tony and Chet's company as well, be absolutely at the top of mind of our customers. And that's really what Tony focused on. And there were many times when we would get together with Tony and it would have been a short meeting, but Tony loves to go on and on about the things that he's passionate about. And the things he's always passionate about is making sure that we over deliver for the customer. And as a result, that's what we did. We always over delivered. Yeah, that's a great insight. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I did want to take us back to your software, software company and the lessons that you learned because I want to make sure that we sort of cover everything that can be useful to those that are listening in this episode. So customer, the customer experience and over-delivering, I think, are great insights. Mm -hmm. What else do you – if we talked about everything as far as uh, building a successful software company, is there anything else that you feel our listeners should know about starting up or building up a successful software company? Well, as I said before, we, I was passionate about ensuring that every customer had the best possible experience. And, you know, like any company, I mean, at one point, we, you know, by the time I sold the company, we had amassed 250,000 customers. Wow. So with that many customers, you can be sure that you're not going to please everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, we occasionally we'd have people call up and they were upset. So, uh, you know, they would be routed to customer service and customer service would handle 99% of those calls. But if they couldn't handle a particular call, we had them routed to a special customer service agent and his name was Alan Singer. Now, in actuality, there was no Alan Singer. Guess who Alan Singer really was? I don't know who was that. Was that all the all the customer service people? That was me. That was you. Okay. That was me. So I had a policy 
that the I wanted the angriest, most distraught customer to be forwarded directly to me. Right. And my policy and my practice was once I got that person on the phone, my goal was that before the phone call was over, I would convert that person into a time slips ambassador. Wow. And I did every single time. And, you know, usually it amounted to doing some, some very basic things like listening, understanding what their problem was, and then going above and beyond to solve it. Give you an example. Somebody buys our software. They're having trouble. It doesn't work. They call tech support. Tech support can't get it to work. So they call up and they want a refund. And they're way past their refund period. So my reps are um, authorized to go, you know, 60 days past the refund period, but usually not much more than that. Anyway, so guy gets on the phone with me and says, look, I bought the software two years ago. We never used it. Now we started to use it. It's already out of date and now it doesn't work. So I said, tell you what, let me get somebody to come to your office and install it for you and get you completely up and running, and I will refund your money that you paid two years ago. Wow. Do you think that guy was a happy customer? Oh, yeah. Right. Do you you know what he did after that? Told all his his colleagues. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. So he went around bragging at his next bar association. You're not going to believe this company time slips what they did. You know, and that's the story of, of how we became a grassroots famous company for going above and beyond and delivering amazing service to all of our clients. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic example you've given us of how to turn a bad situation into such a positive thing for the business and for everyone, for yourself, for the client. That's a really good yep. example. One thing that I was wondering too, Mitch, is about pricing. I think that's mm-hmm. something a lot of people when they're starting a software company can, you know, making the wrong decision with pricing can really hurt or really help your business a lot. Can you tell us your experience with pricing and did you change your pricing model? What worked for you when it came to pricing? Sure. So when we first came out, the entire software business was mail order. So basically somebody had to pick up a phone or mail in a check to buy software. Uh, And so when we priced our software initially, we did it all wrong. We priced it, frankly, we we originally priced it at $69. Then we raised it to $99 after price testing it with some clients. And then um, after some amazing publicity, we got uh, asked to be in distribution so that they could sell it to stores, their customers. Well, guess what happens with distributors? They market up 50%. So we had to raise the prices from $99 to $199 in one single move. And we were afraid to do it. But we knew that if we didn't do it, we couldn't sell through distribution. We wouldn't make enough money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we, we did it. And we held our breath and we hoped it would be okay. We did it. And it worked great. And one of the things that we had done since early on is – we had decided that we were going to basically price our software uh, and offer a discount. So even in the beginning, when we set the price of our software, we set it very high and offered discounts so that the perception was that it was worth more, but they could get it now for a temporary discount. 
And that also helped accelerate sales as well. With software, I know there's, there's, there's constant revisions of the products, there's updates, bug fixes. Do you still recommend for people that are selling software today to sell it at a one-off fee? Should they be selling it at a monthly, on a monthly subscription, yearly? What do you think is a good strategy? Or does, yeah, it, depend, does it depend on, the, obviously it would depend on the software too, I guess, in your market. Uh, yeah, there, there are going to be some products that, that do either one. But these days, most software is sold uh, uh, basically on, an invest, on a monthly or yearly licensing fee. And what you're really buying is you're not buying a product or licensing a product for life. You're licensing a product monthly. And by licensing it monthly, then there's no such thing anymore as updates or upgrades. It's rolled into the product all the time. So that's what people get by paying monthly. Mm. And it's a win-win when you do it that way too. So for the business, you have a monthly income coming in. Yes. And so you, as you build your customer base, your income, the, the revenue increases. And for the user of the software, they don't have to pay a hefty one-off fee. They're paying a monthly right. fee and they're getting updates all the time. So they don't have to worry about it not being compatible and so forth. Exactly, exactly. And you know what happens is um, in the model that I'm going to be working with now is that we'll be offering a chance for people to buy a year subscription at a steep discount to the monthly rate. So. Mm -hmm. That's another great model that allows you to generate some quick and easy cash flow while at the same time working on, um, you know, having a constant income from your consulting business from, mm. from, the, from the monthly subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent model. Yes. And, and also the, uh, the, by having a subscription-based client, uh, sorry, client base of uh, subscribers, you're building an extremely valuable business for when you go to sell it at a, if, or if you have a vision to sell it at a exactly. later date. Yeah. And, yeah. and every business should be built to be sold. There's really no point in building a business if you're not building it to selling, to selling it because ultimately, you know, you don't want to, you're not looking for a job. You're not looking to enslave yourself forever. You're looking to make something very, very, very valuable and then you sell it. And that turns into what they call a liquidity event, which are very delightful when they happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. Uh, we, we've been speaking with Mitch Russo. I really appreciate your insights today, Mitch. Um, now, the best place for people to get a hold of you, Mitch, or to see what you're doing, wh where can they go? Well, my website, MitchRusso.com, is where is sort of the center of my business life. Um, and the latest addition to that is my new podcast. So I have been podcasting since May. And the name of my podcast is uh, yourfirsttthousandsclients.com. Yourfirsttthousandsclients.com. And my podcast is similar in terms of audience to your own. I'm really interviewing top business builders who've had and built companies with thousands of clients. And just like you are, I interview them for the idea and purpose of having them disclose their wisdom to help my listeners grow their own business. So I'd like to invite your listeners to tune in and try a few of our shows and see if they like them 
Um, and at the same time, if anything I've said on this show today has sparked your interest or gotten you excited, uh, you could reach me on my own webpage, MitchRusso.com. Ask me a question. Uh, you could go and purchase my book. Uh, it's called The Invisible Organization. And that book is a great resource for people who are looking to build and grow a virtual company. That's what the book's about. Fantastic. Again, thank you so very much, Mitch. It's great. It's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Thank you. And I also want to thank everyone for being here today on this podcast episode. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure being with you. Hey, John Legadakis here. If you got something out of today's episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast as each week I'm releasing valuable and up-to-date content and interviews. Also, there is a transcript of today's episode as well as links to all the resources we mentioned on my website, johnlegadakis.com. On my website, you'll also find a lot of great free resources to help you get more traffic and leads for your business as this is my specialty, i.e helping local businesses generate leads through Facebook and AdWords campaigns. My website again is johnlegadakis.com. Thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This is John Legadakis signing off. I'll see you next time.